Well, good morning again. There are many, many stories, many tales, uh, many, well, really any culture, in every culture. Every culture has its uh, prized, uh, precious stories that define something of who and what they are, myths the great stories, myths. We, our own culture, our own society has its own myths. One of the great myths, one of the great stories uh, told, foisted upon us uh, in the last century uh, went something like this. God is a projection of your desires. This is one of the great myths of the early 20th century, and many of us have imbibed something of that and are still trying to Uh, disinfect ourselves of that. God is a projection of your desires, meaning that you believe that he is real because you want him to be real. You believe that these things are true because for whatever reason you want them to be true. So God is a projection of your desires. Now, just as a quick aside, you could counter that by saying, you know, your claim is actually quite possibly a projection of your own desires. You want that myth to be true, and that's why you're proclaiming it to me. But that's a whole nother message for a whole nother day. The, the, the fact is, and, and I don't want you to stay with me here. Don't please put the rotten fruit down. Um, the fact is that Christians, we can project in many ways. We can project on God in, in many ways in terms of who we think, who we understand him to be, oftentimes because of our expectations, our, or rather, I should say our experiences. Our experiences in life create our expectations and assumptions of who he is and how he engages with us. Because of our experiences, we assume that he then is like that, like this person, like this group of people, like me. He assumes he is like, we assume that he is like us. We project on God all the time assuming that he is like us. Here's the question. Is he? Is that true? Is he, in fact, like us? And if not, then, well, then, okay, who, who are we talking about then? Who, who is he? What is he? Like well, we're pressing now on in our this series through the uh, our study through the book of Judges. Okay, we're coming up on Judges 16. Uh, those of you who are just kind of flying in for the first time into this ser- in series and wondering what in the world Judges, what is that about? Judge Judy, Judge Wapner. I mean, what Judge Dread? What what who who is this? Um, the book of Judges, a, a vitally significant period in uh, Israel's history. This is in the time between uh, Moses and Joshua coming into the land of Canaan, the settlement and conquest of the land, and the establishment of the monarchy, say the stage of Saul, David, Solomon, and then all the rest. This is that intermediary period. It's really, really messy uh, here in this intermediary period. And we are now, this morning, looking at, for our third time in this series, looking at a guy named Samson. He is the twelfth of the twelve judges described here in the book of Judges, and we're going to learn something uh, about him a little bit more. Uh, likely, perhaps, what we're about to get into here is perhaps some of the most familiar material for, for some of you, 
as far as what you knew about what you know about Samson. But my, my guess is, as we look at this a little bit more closely, it may um, surprise you. It may surprise you what's actually really there. So, Judges chapter 16, starting in verse 1, all the way into the chapter, verse 31. Judges chapter 16, starting in uh, verse 1. Hear now God's word. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she went and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. 
But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the, two, between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Ashdaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Well, after that happy story, perhaps we should pray. So would you bow your head? Jesus, thank you for preserving these words such that we could read them here this morning. Uh, thank you for working in the ways that you were in that time. We ask that you would help us to see, uh, even as we were reading from Isaiah 55, the ways in which your ways are not like our own, that your love and compassion far, far supersede any of our assumptions and expectations. Who is a God like you? None, none is a God like you. Uh, thank you for that very good news. We pray that you would deepen that reality into our, our hearts this morning. Please, Lord, have mercy on us. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to paint a scenario for you, if I, if I may. So here, here it is. Um, I want you to imagine you have spent some extended period of time in what we'll call a toxic environment of some kind. Maybe it's your workplace. Uh, maybe it's the classroom. Maybe it's the locker room. But it's a toxic, unhealthy uh, rela uh, relationships and environment and all of that. But now you've left it behind. You spent a lot of time there, but now you've left it behind, and you're making the adjustments to this new place, this, this new setting. But the problem is, of course, as you're making these adjustments, you find it's hard to leave all that behind because it's so deeply ingrained what that was like for you. And so you find yourself constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering, when am I going to screw up? When is somebody going to yell at me? When are they going to uh, belittle me in front of everyone? When are they going to mock me? When are they going to demote me? 
Because, you know, again, because of what you're so accustomed to. And then one of your new compatriots in this new place says to you, hey, 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 relax. It's not like that here. Now, that would be good news, wouldn't it? That would encourage you, wouldn't it? To, to hear this person who knows, to tell you, it's not like that here. It's kind of like what we find here in Judges 16, what we've been singing about all morning. It's not like that here with Jesus. It's not like that here with him. So again, his, his, we've been talking about this, this far, said it a few times already. His ways are not like our ways. He is constantly blowing up our expectations and our assumptions, constantly casting them to the side. And that, that does take some getting used to, right? It, it takes a lot of getting used to. And, and the longer, you know, you've sat in that place, the longer and harder it is, of course, for many of us, we could all, many of us could attest to this, the harder it is to sort of get deprogrammed out of, out of all that, that toxicity, after having come to him. And we all struggle in, in different areas, in different ways, and come with different paced. And, but the, the fact is, nonetheless, all with all that said, it's good news. It's good news, really good news to know that he is not like us, that the true and living God is not like us. And, and that's really, in many ways, the, the, the theme of what you can call from this passage. The Lord is God, and he is not like us, and that should encourage us. The Lord is God, he is not like us, and that should encourage us say, how do you see that here? How do you see that he's God and not like us? And the encouragement, let me, okay, three ways. If you got in the, you got your outline, got the, the, the bulletin there, here's where we're going. You can see it showing itself in the ways he's not like us and how the grounds for encouragement in the stern warning, first, the stern warning that he gives. Secondly, in the deep hope that he provides. And then thirdly, in this great sign that he has given, okay? So those three things, the warning, the hope, and the sign. Let's press in. So first, the warning. It's pretty obvious. Uh, you see it all, really all through. Samson's whole life is a warning, really, when, when you think about it. But let me just read verses one to three again. Samson went to Gaza. So this Gaza, this is uh, southwest, uh, if you're looking at the map, right there on the Mediterranean Sea, this is the capital of the Philistine territory. What is he doing there? It's kind of like, you know, what your parents told you growing up. You know, anything that happens after midnight is not good. Stay home. Um, nothing good happens in Gaza. Just stay home. He doesn't stay home. He went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute. He went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. They surround the place, set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. So, okay, I'll just, you get the idea. Samson, you read at the end of chapter 15, he's been a judge for 20 years. We're not sure exactly how we're in the 20 year span this incident is, but it's pretty clear the man has learned nothing. He has learned absolutely nothing thus far. You see, you see there's a huge difference, and we don't do well in recognizing this distinction, but there's a huge difference between faithfully sticking to your guns and just being ornery and unteachable. 
And Samson is the latter, ornery and unteachable, okay? In many ways, the, the narrator wants us to, wants the, the original readers to read themselves as the nation of Israel, and really would have to say today as the church, into Samson as a warning for us to see a larger pattern in here. His folly, the man is, to, use a, to steal the words from Robert Palmer somewhere in the mid-80s, he's addicted to love. Thank you. He's addicted to women. He's addicted to, with any danger, with, excuse me, with any addiction, with any addiction, you have the law of diminishing returns and increased costs. So he's stepping into more and more danger to get the next hit, to get the next high. It's why he's in Gaza, really. It's most likely why in the world he's in, it's why he's there. And the, the, the tragedy is he's blind to this. He's blind to his ensnarement in this. And it just gets worse when you get to the one woman that he's addicted to who's actually named. We'll get to her in just a second. So Samson's folly is meant to be a picture of the whole nation's folly, of Israel's folly. Israel, a nation that's been gifted, well-positioned in place, and chasing after every other love they can find besides Yahweh. And blind to the whole thing, blind to their heart states, blind to the danger that they are fast moving into. Israel is meant to understand that Samson not just comes for them, but comes of them. He is them. He is a picture of the nation as a whole, this larger pattern they are meant, we are meant to see. And also something of this principle, this heart's dynamic that, that's worth noting here. Here I want to just... Maybe some of you may have thought of this as you're thinking about the larger story of Samson. Certainly you see it here. This chapter, you certainly saw it in chapters 14 and 15. Will was there with us. We were there with him uh, last week. What's going on with this gifted man, gifted of the Holy Spirit, and so, so little sign of anything else going on in his life? There's all this great strength and so little inner power. There's all this great Doing and so little real being. What is going on here? If you, if you thought about that, you know, what's going on with Samson? Well, there's two ways to answer it. One is just to understand that the Holy Spirit did work differently in the Old Testament era prior to the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, as you can read about in Acts 2. That's answer number one. That's true. Answer number two, equally true, is, is this. We are warned in the New Testament very clearly about the possibility that we can have the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. You can have, you can be insanely gifted by the Spirit, like off the charts. You're a superstar, and you're a wretch inwardly. Paul warns us of that in 1 Corinthians 13 where he talks about, you know, all these gifts, and he says, but without love, right? Right? I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal right there. I mean, you can see it. You can see it in, in, through the New Testament and certainly since today. That's what you have with Samson, the gifts without the fruit, the strength without the power. And he is, because of that, you see that his gifting is so, and the expression of a gift is so selfish. It's really not till the very end, and I mean like the very, very end, that he's actually exercising his gifts in the name of the giver of the gifts. We'll get to that in a bit. 
Samson's a warning. Samson's a warning. He, he is the poster child for wasted potential. And think of all the, the, the stories, and, and no doubt some of you could fill in some blanks with some names. College athletes, right, who just blew it up. I mean, in terms of excelling in, in their years as college athletes. But when they went pro, everything went sideways. They lost their support structure. They began to run with the wrong crowd, listen to the wrong, wrong advice. They're no longer in disciplines as they should have been. And then they're just a wreck. They're, they're like a footnote, you know. In fact, they're, they're, in some cases, their colleges that they came from don't even want to admit that, yeah, they, or the statue came down or whatever it is. That's like Samson, a warning here. But look, here's the thing. To be warned is to be loved. For us to be warned by God is to be loved by God. It comes from a place of care for us. So maybe there's some questions here worth our wrestling with just for a moment, and that would, something along these lines, when it comes to our, our gifting, this is a talented group of people here in front of me this morning. I don't doubt that. Gifted group of people. More than you know. But where might we be presuming upon the way God has gifted us misusing the gifts that he has given us, perhaps even abusing the gifts that he has given us. Where might that be happening in our own lives? Where might there be in your life, in my life, a deficit, a chasm between the being and the doing? And how would you know? How would you know and how would you address it let me just suggest quickly two things. One, a real prayer life that goes far beyond just shooting arrows up into the sky when you're in a panic, but an abiding with Jesus. Prayer and people in your life, people in your life that you let in close enough to speak into your life, where they see these things and can call you out on it. The good news is that the Lord is God. He is not like us. Therein he warns us, and that should encourage us. Which brings us to the second point. Very closely, uh, inextricably tied to that. Not just a stern warning, but a deep hope that you see here as well. So certainly we see, when you think about it, God's enduring purposes unfolding here in and through Samson. Now, to be sure, this man, Samson, deviated widely and wildly from the path that he was supposed to be walking on. He has deviated crazily from the path that he's supposed to be walking on. If you go back to chapter 13, you can see there that he was called from the start, even from his mother's womb, to be a Nazarite. He speaks to that very thing in his conversation with Delilah. He's called to be a Nazarite. You go back and read Numbers and what we find there is, well, what is that? that? That doesn't mean you're from Nazareth. It means that you have been set aside by God. Oaths have been taken, in his case, his parents. Uh, oaths have been taken that you would be set aside, um, commissioned for special service to the Lord, externally marked, manifested by abstaining from strong drink, from touching anything that's dead, 
and from the cutting of your hair. Now go back and read Samson's story and you will see he managed to creatively violate all three of those vows. The last one though, not till the end, but man, he did it in spades in a spectacular way. The ways that he has deviated from this path. But the, the wonderful thing here, the wondrous thing here is that despite all the deviations of Samson from the path, the Lord declares what the plan will be and it will not be shaken. It will not be moved. Let me take you back to the announcement. This was a few weeks ago. Not that it was given a few weeks ago, but we talked about it a few weeks ago. In Judges 13, in Judges chapter 13, this is the announcement that the angel gives to his, his mother, not the angel's mother, Samson's mother. Chapter 13, verse 5. Listen to what the angel said to his mother before he was even born. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is going to happen. Your boy is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He doesn't say how. But he does say it's going to happen. Now, then fast forward. He's a little older now. You get to the, to the beginning of chapter 14. Will touched on this last week. So uh, this is another one of those instances in which Samson, as he's growing older and comes into adulthood, he's all about what's good in his, and right in his own eyes, one of the refrains actually from the book of Judges. And because of that, he's, his affections, his heart, his eyes are set upon this Philistine woman. His heart is no doubt his parents' heart are broken. They're beside themselves. What the heck, Samson? Don't you, we've told you from birth what you're, you're supposed to be a Nazarite. You're supposed to be beginning to put the Philistines down, not marry them. You're the chosen one. Um, chapter 14, verse 4. Listen, though. His father and mother did not know that it was that this, this whole thing, that mess I just described, that it was from the Lord, for he, now the he is the Lord. It's not Samson. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So even in, again, here's Samson deviating from the path. Woo! He's just all, but the purpose is not going anywhere. Okay? God's enduring purposes are not going to be shaken. Man, that's good news. As is this, his abiding presence. This too you see with Samson. Now, you see it especially in his prayer. So skipping down over to verse 20, chapter 16, verse 20. This is uh, uh, before, right before the prayer. You think in terms of the, the shift in his stance. So to understand the, 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 the drama, the moment of his, this prayer, what he prays later in the temple of Dagon, consider where just, just hours or days before where he finds himself with Delilah when he wakes up. This is what we hear in his inner life. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. It's like, no big deal. He's just you know, trucking on along, has no inkling. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now that is a tragic statement. Think about the weightiness of that observation, of that statement by the narrator of Judges. He did not know Samson, the judge, the one who's supposed to be the deliverer of Israel does not even know 
but the God of Israel has left him. He, he doesn't have enough understanding of when he's present, so therein he can't understand when he's gone. But then skip over with me to chapter, later in the chapter to verse 28. This is when he's at his lowest, but when his heart and mind is clearest. The actual prayer, verse 28. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, it's hard to know exactly all the heart's motivations that's going on there. What does he have in mind? Entirely, why is he praying this? What does he want? I'll tell you this, though. You can't shake what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 34. Now, listen to this. Samson's being described in this list in the hall of faith. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, listen how they're described. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's Samson. So, yes, we have to say that he had spent so much of his life, almost the entirety of his life, self-deluded and self-directed and self-dependent, but in the very, very end, this fallen, foolish man cries out to the Lord in faith. And God hears him. Clearly, God hears him. You pick up where we just left off in Judges 16, verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. You get the drama building, building, building. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And in that, you hear echoes of chapter 13, verse 5. He's going to begin to set the people Israel free from the Philistines. And he does in this moment as it all comes tumbling down. That's exactly what happens. Now, the Pharisees, excuse me, not the Pharisees. Well, maybe they aren't, but Philistines. The Philistines are not expecting this. Obviously, they're not going to be on the roof. They're not going to be underneath. I mean... They're not expecting this. They're assuming that with the hair shaved, the vow broken, the danger's gone, his strength is gone, and that God, Yahweh, is done with this guy. That's what they're thinking. And I would just add a quick aside. When that's how you're thinking about a fallen servant of Jesus, that's a Philistine way of thinking. That's a house of Dagon way of thinking about yourself or somebody else. Because what do we see with Samson? Hey, we're almost in college football season. Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. We have a great hope. A great hope we have here. So we were in the silver chair in our Inklings Beyond group this past week. Uh, towards the very end, there's uh, this 
meeting between Aslan, the great lion. He appears to the two children in the story, Jill and, and Eustace. Jill's mind is flooded with memory uh, as to all that's gone wrong on the quest, and frankly, how so much of that was her fault. But listen to what happens when Aslan shows up. It is not what she expects, and it's beautiful. I've come said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill remembered only how she had made Eustace fall over the cliff and how she'd helped to muff nearly all the signs and about the snappings and quarreling. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she could not speak. Then the lion drew them towards him with his eyes. And he bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue and said, think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. What do we have here? We have Judges 16 here. We have a love that will not let us go. That's what we have here. Now, I don't, use, I don't, I rarely do what I'm about to do. I rarely say what I'm going to say. Write this down. Write down what I'm about to tell you. There's pens in front of you. Go ahead, grab one. Grab a neighbor's pen. Steal it. Write this down. The Lord is utterly for you and intimately with you. He is utterly for you and intimately with you. Now, what might happen, run a thought experiment here for a moment, what might happen, what might change if we actually took that to heart? Like this upcoming week, we were to step into whatever is in front of us, believing that he is utterly for you, despite the circumstances, despite how everything looks knowing yet still he is utterly for you? What might change if you believed that he is intimately with you and no matter what's going on, you have but to cry out in dependency upon him? What might change if you believed he was utterly for you and intimately with you? He is God and he is not like us. He is God, he is not like us. Therein we have a deep hope and that should encourage us. We have one more thing. Not just the warning and not just the hope, but a sign. A sign that is given to us. Samson is not just a picture for Israel. He is a picture of Jesus. He's what theologians refer to as a type. That is to say, a sign. One who is pointing, a human figure that is pointing forward towards the greater Samson, the greater judge, Jesus. That's who we really see in Judges 16. Judges 16 is about Jesus. Now, to be sure, there is a lot that sets these two figures apart, Samson and Jesus, obviously. I mean, the reason Samson is there in the temple of Dagon is because of his own stupid doing. That's why he's there. And the deliverance that he would bring, real as it was, was really limited. But still, 
Think with me about how, despite all the way, the contrast, think about all the similarities, think about all the ways in which they are alike. How they died, the parallels and the way you see this judge and that judge. Betrayal, handed over, bound, tortured, mocked, arms spread apart, dying alone, Think about the, their enemies and what happens in the course of their death. Yes, they die horrific deaths and at the same time crush their enemies in so doing. Do you see the parallels? Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that's just a strange quirk of history? Do you think that's just kind of this weird set of, huh, you know, kind of like the stuff you read about with Kennedy and Lincoln, you know, stuff like that, you know, the weird parallels that some historians want to draw there. Is that what's going? No, 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 a thousand times, no. What do we see here? We see the power of God. We see the author of history. Like what's happening roughly 1,100 years before Jesus shows up, we have these parallels being written into the fabric of the flow of events itself. Now, who could do that but the author, the Lord over all things to show us, to, to, to implant into the storyline themes from way before that would point forward like that? Now, but why would he do that? To show off? No. To show us. To show us his love for us. To get our stubborn attention, which can be really stubborn really stubborn. Um, he's gone to a lot of trouble, folks. He's gone to incredible lengths that we would know his power and his love and trying to get our attention wherever we might be on this historical timeline. But here we are in 2023. A great sign from a powerful God who is passionate for his people great sign from a powerful God who is passionate for his people, one who will take and go to great lengths, great pains to show his great love for us. Uh, imagine, you know, the, the, the most outlandish wedding proposal, engagement proposal you've ever heard of, right? Well, I mean, sometimes there's not the healthiest reasons for that, but just assuming the best of what's going on there between the man and the woman, what is he trying to say? What is he trying to show? You know, maybe it's the, the $5,000 on a custom-made movie trailer there in the cinema. Or maybe it's the, uh, the $2,500 on the Jumbotron at the major, major League Baseball game. What's the point? He's trying to show his love. He's going to those links, right? Is that not what we have in the fabric of history with these, a multitude of signs pointing forward intentionally the way the Lord worked history to show us Jesus. You see, history, the way the Lord has structured history, the way his, everything that has ever happened is in and from his hand is meant to drive us to Jesus. But let me personalize that if I may. It's not just what's happened in global 
big history. Everything that was in and from his hand that's meant to drive us to Jesus, it's in your history too and in mine. All the ugly, and a lot of it's really ugly. But think with me. This is not just true in the, in the macro. It's true on the micro level too. Everything that has happened in your life was ultimately in and from his hand to drive you to Jesus. The Lord is God. He is not like us. He gives us not just a warning, not just the hope, but the signs. And that should encourage us. So intense is his love for us. Let me just end with this last thing. Um, if I may, just because I think it begs a question here right at the very, very end. How can these things get worked into our hearts? How, how do these become more than just points and subpoints in, in a sermon? How might the reality of his giving us these warnings and this hope and these signs, how might we take hold of those things and then actually begin to change us, actually take hold of us and go deep within us? We need a vision of Jesus and who he is. That's the only thing. That's the only answer here. If I may just take you back to this, this, that scene from the silver chair. Just repeat the first line. So the children are there. Aslan shows up. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. That's what Jill needed, a transforming vision of the lion. That's what we need. That's what we need. More than just an occasional glance, but continually looking to him. More than just doing it individually, but doing it corporately, that we would see him truly. More than just when it's convenient, when it's easy, when what he's showing us goes down with a little resistance in our hearts, but also when it's hard, when he's checking us, when he's changing us, not just when it's easy, but gazing, our gaze upon him. Friends, what would that look like for you and I? What would it look like for our gaze to be continually upon him? Maybe we should ask him. Let's pray. Lord, you are God. You are the I am. You are the one who in love gives the warning. You are the one who in mercy brings the hope. You in your faithfulness brings the signs. Lord, would you please give us a greater, deepening, truer vision of, of who you are this morning and through this week 
and through this month and through this year, through our lives, would you help us to please, please live in light of these realities? What we see echoes of here in Judges 16. Lord, would you please help us be people who are looking to you and leaning into you and learning in the deepest possible way from you all the time. 